is the female diaconate being promoted at the Vatican with the Pope's support. And the controversial Vatican Directive on Blessings continues to generate dissent. The Papal Posse, Father Gerald Murray and Robert Royal are here with analysis. A powerful new film about the life of St. Francis Cabrini is about to be released. Director Alejandro Monteverde is here to tell us all about it. And in light of the Marco Rupnik scandal, the disgraced priest artist who was found guilty of sexually abusing nuns, what should be done with his art? And should his work be considered separate from his misdeeds? Author and historian Liz Lev weighs in. The World Over begins right now. Now, Raymond Arroyo. A warm welcome to all of you joining us in the United States and the world over. If you'd like to comment on tonight's show, send me an X post, a nice one, at Raymond Arroyo. Let's get right to it. Pope Francis recently met with a female Anglican bishop as well as a Salesian theologian, a nun, at a meeting of his Council of Cardinals at the Vatican. The issue of a female diaconate was discussed, but where is this headed? Here with analysis is the Papal Posse, editor-in-chief of the CatholicThing.org, Robert Royal, and canon lawyer and priest of the Archdiocese of New York, Father Gerald Murray. Thank you, gents, for being here. Uh, I want to start with this Salesian sister, this Linda Poacher. She said in an interview with a Spanish-language paper on February 8th the following, We already know that the Pope is very much in favor of the female diaconate, but it is still something that we are trying to understand how to put into practice. Hmm. Sister says Pope Francis is very much in favor of ordaining women deacons, regardless of his opinion. Father, on this matter, what does established canon law say, not to mention the magisterial teaching of the church? Well, in canon law, uh, only men can be ordained uh, to holy orders, uh, diaconate, priesthood, and the episcopate. So it is not permitted, and the reason it's not permitted is because the church has never done it. The church has never thought she was capable of doing it. There is no history of female deacons receiving the sacrament of holy orders ever in the life of the church. Uh, the, for this uh, sister to say that we all know that the pope wants to ordain women deacons, we don't know that at all. That's an assertion. I think for me that's part of the propaganda effort to say simply the pope is going to do this. Uh, no, the Pope convened a commission in 2016. Uh, the results were never released, but apparently that commission did not endorse a female diaconate. Another commission was founded in 2020. Uh, we haven't heard any results from that, although a number of members of that commission have died. So right now it's in a modus of study, and I think these are efforts to kind of propel, propel it along by claiming, well, it's already been decided, it's just we've got to figure out how to do it. If this were done, this would mark a serious moment of heresy in the life of the church because you would have uh, the pope authorizing something that is impossible to happen, women being given the sacrament of holy orders. And if that happened, the church would be splitting apart because you'd have some bishops and do it and others wouldn't. And then if you, in a diocese in which a woman was ordained a deacon, could that deacon go across boundaries to the next diocese and function as a deacon? She wouldn't even be recognized as a deacon. So this is very serious, and I really regret 
these basically political statements asserting things that are not known or not proven. And by the way, uh, if there is a commission that's studying the matter, what's the status of their work? Because we already know there was the International Theological Commission in 2002 said there are no women deacons in church history. So I think this is a matter of grave seriousness. Bob, this was a closed issue. You know, John Paul II had to deal with this. Benedict dealt with this. I mean, this was settled. My question is, as Father was just saying, if this is, this is indeed something we don't know for sure, whether Pope Francis actually supports female deacons or not, but where is the Vatican clarifying it if he doesn't? This woman, this, this uh, theologian, she got up there at a Vatican conference, coming out of a Vatican conference with a council of cardinals, and made this assertion. Where is the Vatican press operation if it isn't true? If it isn't true. Yeah, that's a very good question, because I think I agree with almost everything Father said, but I don't know that this, uh, this sister, Linda Poacher, is operating in a kind of freelance zone. I mean, she was chosen by the Holy Father to organize this meeting with women. She was the one who selected that Anglican female bishop to participate and speak to the uh, the Council of Cardinals. So, you know, as in so much in the past, I mean, we've already forgotten uh, the way that the Holy Father used to say things privately to Eugenio Scalafuri, the famous Italian journalist. Apparently, at one point, at least, he said to Claudio Holerich that he he believed with Holerich that our, the church's teaching about homosexuality was incorrect. You know, there are things that are, he, I think he says in private, and we we've have, we have so much of a history of this. I think we, we have to kind of presume that maybe this is true. Now, if it is true, there have been some instances and it's not only in, in the pre-Bergoglio uh, papacies. There have been some instances when he's spoken out and said that ordination is only for men. And that seems to be a strong statement. And some commentators have said, well, you know, sister must be mistaken about that. But I have to speculate, and this is only a speculation. It seems to me that he does want to raise the status of women in the church. He said this. He's invited that the, the church should become less masculine. I actually think it should become more masculine, but that's a different question for a different day. Could it be? Could it be that like these blessings of irregular couple, what we might get is some status, some semi-official status for women that wouldn't be defined as the diaconate, but in fact would have some of the functions of being a deacon, and so we would actually get the reality without the title. That wouldn't surprise me at all. And it may be that that's the next step. I want you to pick up on that because, I mean, Bob is right. Just last October, Pope Francis reaffirmed that ordaining women priests or deacons was impossible. But, you know, his magisterium also said that blessing gay couples was impossible until they weren't. Where do you think this is headed? Might we be headed to some new classification of subdeacons that could include women in the way that blessings now can include everybody under the sun? Well, that's not what the female ordination crowd wants, Raymond. So if the Pope gives it to them, it'll be a diversion from what they wish. No, the, by the way, the issue here is not women deacons. The issue is women priests. Uh, and, right. But they know that this is the way they can get into it. Why is that? The sacrament of holy orders is one sacrament. There are not three sacraments. There are three degrees or levels of the sacrament, but it's only one sacrament. So as soon as you ordain, try to ordain, I should say better, attempt to ordain a woman, a deacon, they're going to turn around and say, look, a woman has holy orders. Now she gets promoted to the second and third degree. What's the contradiction? Well, the answer is the church has never permitted it and because the church judges that it can't. 
Remember that the diaconate was created by the Holy Spirit through the apostles. We believe that it's revealed teaching that the apostles, when they ordained the first deacons, were doing so under the influence of the Holy Spirit. The church has always understood herself bound by this. Deaconesses in the early church were not ordained deacons. They did not receive tonsure, the minor orders. There's no history of females serving as deacons in mass, of preaching, all this. Uh, this is all an attempt to use modern feminism as a new criteria for determining the meaning of revelation and church teaching. It has to be rejected. If it's accepted, there will be chaos in the church. Because as soon as you ordain or attempt to ordain a woman deacon, the next step is, why in justice can a male deacon be promoted to the priesthood and a female deacon can't? That's what they're going to say. It's a disaster. This has to be rejected. Well, and, and again, it, here's the real problem. <laughs> I mean, I, I would say this about almost everything we discuss every week for the last 10 years. It doesn't matter what people think or what people want. This is not the church of any individual or even of a pope. This is the church of Jesus Christ. That's what the Catholic Church has always taught. Now, either that's valid and true, or it is simply untrue. And if it isn't, we're going to go play golf on Sundays, guys. We'll get a night, we'll have a great time, and I'll meet you at the clubhouse. But th th this is very serious here. And I have to say, the visual of this began when we had female altar servers, because suddenly you had girls now aspiring to the altar or wanting to be near it. That raised the visual. And in Catholicism, the sensate, the done, the things that we do every day and every year, the rhythm of that is far more important than any state of doctrine because people don't read doctrine. These people know what they're doing. And so I think a change is definitely in, in the offing, if not already underway. Jens, we have to move on to another ongoing controversy, and it's related. I mean, it, this Vatican directive on blessings in same-sex and divorced remarried couples, fiducia supplicans. Despite the Pope and Cardinal Fernandez granting carve-outs for the African church, organized dissent all over the world is growing. Cardinal Mueller, the former Vatican doctrinal chief, was asked by our Ed Penton about why the directive was issued. He said this, there was no need for this document, but now the latter interpretations are relativizing themselves and they are only deepening, widening the confusion. They cannot explain what the difference is between a liturgical and a private benediction, blessing. They are putting forward a nebulous connotation instead of saying what is absolutely clear in the gospel. Uh, Father, your thoughts on what seems to be increasing confusion as a result of this document? Well, I want to praise the African hierarchy and especially Cardinal Ambongo from uh, Kinshasa Zaire because he has basically laid down the law and told the Holy Father, we are not accepting this in Africa. Now, the Pope has said that this is because of African cultural uh, uh, specificities. Not the case. I'm sorry, Holy Father. It's not because the Africans have some culture that rejects it. It's because the Africans believe in the gospel. And the gospel confirms any cultural resistance to accepting sodomy as a legitimate and blessed form of sexual activity. Now, if, let, let's look at it this way. If it's true that it's a good thing to bless homosexual couples, how could you give a carve out? How, what are you saying to people? You're saying African bishops aren't going to do something that the Pope considers to be good? Well, in essence, what we have here is the Africans saying, it's not good, we're not going to do it, and the Pope says, well, I'll give you an exception. But how is it wrong for a priest you know, in Africa to say, I'm not going to bless you to a homosexual couple? 
Then he travels to France, England, or the U.S., and the bishop there says, you must bless homosexual couples. He'll say, no, wait a minute. It was wrong for me to do it at home. It's wrong for me to do it here. Now, this is a major serious crisis. I consider this to be like a point in the life of the church where people are waking up and saying, look, the ordinary obedience that we owe to the Holy Father has now been tested because the Holy Father is asking us to do something that we know contradicts the gospel. Jesus Christ never would ever countenance blessing a homosexual relationship, and we can't do it as, as Catholic priests. This is wrong. Bob, this also begs the other question that I've raised repeatedly and, and Father alludes to there. It shatters the entire reason for Catholicism, the universal aspect that one teaching is, is licit, valid, and, and, and clear everywhere. That is disrupted by this document. Now the Pope himself has said, well, you don't have to do it here and you don't have to do it there. This is Protestantism, isn't it? Yeah, like th this is really the culmination, right, of almost 10 years of an attempt to bless gays. Um, one of the very first synods that I attended, and Father Murray and I were both there together, was in 2014, which was the first synod on the family. There were two of them. And at the interim report, the entire room, the entire press room was was absolutely astonished when they read the interim report and it said we, ought to, we have to recognize and value what's good in same-sex relationships. And in fact, it was so embarrassing that uh, Cardinal Peter Erdu from, from Hungary, um, who was the president of, the, uh, of that synod, I think that's the right term, he was the, the head of the, that synod, uh, was leading a, a press conference when the, when the statement came out, and um, they asked him, how can you justify this? And he pointed to Archbishop Bruno Forte and said, why don't you answer that? You're the one who put it in there. And he put it in there because the Holy Father wanted it. It's clear, as Father says, that this cannot be a culturally determined question. And it also is not, the Holy Father just said in the last week or so, it is also not hypocrisy for people to resist those blessings. And then supposedly, in, in the sort of straw man uh, that he raised up, allow him to bless evil businessmen who were exploiting their... First of all, there's nobody who, who actually thinks those two things. It's okay for him to bless evil in, in businessmen and, and not to bless a, a gay couple. But it's not hypocrisy. Hypocrisy does not mean you can't live up to the, the Christian life. It means that, like, we're all sinners... And it's not hypocrisy to be a sinner. We're the, one of the, the reasons we're all in the church is because that truth leads us to God. It's hypocrisy to pretend in public something that in, in private you don't believe because that you, you really would like it to change, but you might lose your position or influence or friendships or whatever. And so what we have here is, I think, clearly an effort um, in, in a kind of a indirect way to do something that contradicts the tradition that you're talking about without appearing to do so. You, you might call that hypocrisy in a way. But in any event, you're absolutely right that either it's a, it's a Catholic, which means universal church, the same everywhere mm -hmm. in its essentials. There are different rights and you know there are different languages that the church operates in. But in its essentials, right. who God is, who man is, how we are to live our lives, those must be universal or we are no longer a Catholic church. Wow. Also being reported this week, Father, over 90 prominent clergy and scholars have signed on to a February 2nd letter asking for the Pope to rescind fiducia supplicans. 
They write, never in the history of the Catholic Church has a document of the Roman magisterium experienced such a strong rejection. Twenty Episcopal conferences, dozens of individual prelates, and then even cardinals invested with the highest positions, such as Cardinal Mueller and Cardinal Sarah, have expressed an unequivocal condemnatory judgment. So have also the UK, US, and Australian confraternities of Catholic clergy. Father, the opposition is growing so fierce, but so far there is no reaction from the Vatican. Can the Pope and the Vatican just ignore this reaction forever? It can be ignored in the sense that they won't answer press questions about it or even address the authors of that document. And, and that's most regrettable, because if there's ever a true form of a synodal spirit in the church, it's when a group of Catholics come together and make a petition to the pope and the bishops to pay attention to what they're thinking. You know, wasn't the premise of the synod and synodality that those who haven't been heard before allegedly in the church need to be present in the room so they could tell the pope and the bishops what they need to hear? Well, here's something coming. It wasn't by invitation only as the synod. This is the freedom of the children of God to speak, and they should, the pope should react to this. Now, sad to say, uh, and this is where the word hypocrisy is quite clear, Cardinal Fernandez claims that we're blessing not the union but the couple. Uh, complete double talk. No one buys it. And I think Bob's point is correct. They're trying to change the teaching of the church about the immorality of homosexual activity, but not say so in public. Because think about what you're doing. A homosexual couple gets married in City Hall. Then they call up their favorite priest and say, would you bless us? We're going to come by and, you know, we'll have our rings and all the rest. And the priest says, sure, why not? And then you say to yourself, well, what does a homosexual couple getting married in City Hall means? Number one, it means they're committing mortal sin, a promise to have sexual activity. And secondly, it means they reject Catholic doctrine that marriage is only between a man and a woman. So you do not deserve to have your relationship blessed when it's based on mortal sin and the rejection of church teaching on the nature of the union of man and woman. Uh, that's what's going on here. Uh, they, they would do very well to listen. Now, it's great they, the Pope and, Fernand, and Cardinal Fernandez listened to the African bishops, but I would say, Holy Father... Uh, there's a big line outside the Vatican waiting to be heard. Uh, let those people also have a hearing. Yeah, well, again, it's the discontinuity of all of this teaching because you, you have a carve-out for, you know, uh, these gay couples. What happens if you walk up... Say you're say you're in a you're dating a woman on the side while you're married, and you walk up to the Vatican or walk up to a, a parish priest and say, "Hey, Father, can you bless my mistress and me?" Well, no, no, we're not married; we're just living together. But bless it, can you give us the blessing? This puts the priest and the church in a very awkward and awful position. And as you say, either there's a hierarchy of good in relationships, marriage being the preeminent, or there isn't. And that's what really, I think, is at stake here. Will the Pope, Bob, do you think, just stonewall everybody? I'll ask you what I asked, Father. Um, writing us off as kind of a small group of rigid people. I mean, how long can he ignore a mass of cardinals and clergy opposing this teaching? Well, I'm tempted to say rigid people have rights in the church, too, since it's a synodal church, and we're all supposed to be listening to one another. Yeah, I have to say, I don't think that Pope Francis is the kind of guy who will withdraw a document uh, like fiducia supplicum. I think he's known Cardinal Fernandez long enough that for whatever reasons, he kind of considers him 
of like mind of like mind with him theologically. So I don't think uh. either that uh, there's a likelihood that some have, have said that he ought to be himself um, removed from office of leading the catastrophe for, for the doctrine of the faith. I don't think either of those things is going to happen. Um, I would hope that there'd be enough resistance, and there is, and not only in Africa. You know, we've talked already about Hungary and Poland and, and other places, hundreds of priests in England, hundreds in, in Spain and, and, and elsewhere. Um, I would hope, though, that that at least practical resistance um, leads the Vatican to stay away from trying to justify this and promote it further, because as Cardinal Mueller has said, they, the more clarifications that they issue, the less clear things are, that the... the Right. The, the clarifications may keep, keep piling up, and yet we're more and more confused because there is no logical reason why they took this step other than that they wanted to affirm something about homosexual couples. It, it just makes no sense in any other terms. Arising from the confusion and the dust being kicked up over this fiducia document comes Jesuit Father James Martin, who has performed a blessing for two married men, in his words, one of whom is a personal friend. Martin even referred to one of the members of the, the couple here as a husband. Father, your reaction, and what's the implication here? Yes, I read Father Martin's tweet, and he referred to one of the two homosexuals who were seeking a blessing as having the husband with him. Now, if Father Martin believes that a man can have a husband, he's denying Catholic teaching. Uh, that's wrong. Uh, that's the world of make-believe. The Church does not believe that two men who get a civil union or marriage are husband and husband. We don't believe that. And if Father Martin claims, well, that's just the civil reality I'm reflecting that, we don't submit to, to Caesar as the ruler and determiner of truth. The man is not married to a husband. In fact, the man's not married at all. Civil marriage of two Catholics is a sinful act, and it reflects a rejection of Catholic doctrine and marriage. Now, I was thinking about it. Imagine if, if the civil government said that I could become a member of the Society of Jesus if Raymond Arroyo said I was. So I went to you, Raymond, and said, I'd like to swear vows to become a Jesuit. And the law permitted, and you said, go right ahead. Would Father Martin call me a Jesuit? I don't think so. The reality has to prevail here, not this false make-believe world in which we pretend the two men who go to a civil judge suddenly become husbands and are involved in some form of marriage. They're not. Moving on, last month, Ed Penton reported that the doctrinal office led by Cardinal Fernandez is planning a very important document on human dignity. In an interview, Tucho Fernandez said the dicastery document would focus on, quote, moral questions such as sex change surgery, surrogacy, and gender ideology. Now, Bob, you wrote a column about this this week titled Memo to Tucho. Um, what do you expect to see from this document, given what we saw in Fiducia? Well, I tried to be helpful, since we're all in a synodal church, and even though I wasn't formally invited to comment on this proposed document, I thought I would put in my two cents ahead of time. And I, I'm worried a bit that this is going to focus on human dignity and social issues. And, and Cardinal Fernandez said that this will later, it'll put people's minds to ease who are un, uh, uneasy about his past work. I don't think that's going to happen, by the way. And I, I, my fear about this is that by using human dignity, we've already seen this, that 
naturally, every Christian believes, and, and even people who are not Christian who've been brought up in Christian societies, that human life is sacred. We don't kill innocent people w without reason. So you can affirm human dignity, and then, however, what is affirmed underneath that can be quite strange, because I think that the, the way that they justify to themselves this blessing of irregular couples is, well, all human beings are have a certain dignity, all, all of us are children of God, we're all sinners, and you can kind of hide under that aspect of human dignity a lot of things that contradict the tradition of the Church that we've been talking about this evening. So I'm, I'm worried about that for, for a bit, but I'm also worried that in, in larger terms, what is being left out of this concern about human dignity is the real threat to human dignity in our time. It's not capitalism. It's not the climate. It, it's not hard-heartedness toward, you know, these poor immigrants who are seeking a better life. Our problem is that there is an anti-human element taking place on the entire face of the earth. It's being pushed by a global elite that hates the family, hates Christianity, dislikes individual countries and thinks that we ought to have a kind of a global government that is running things. All those things are what are producing what are being called populist movements in the United States, in Europe, in Asia, and elsewhere. And the reason that those, those uh, populist movements are arising is people are being, feeling threatened in their workplaces, in their children's schools, when they're out in public. And that is the true human dignity that needs to be defended, the family, the individual, and, and national, or at least local communities. I, I fear that what we're going to get is actually the opposite of that under the, the rubric of protecting human dignity. Mm -hmm. Father, the prefect said this new document would contain, quote, strong criticism of these social issues. Does the dicastery have any credibility left, given what's happening on all these other fronts? I, I, I mean, the pope did just speak out against surrogacy and gender theory. He also denounced women's ordination in October. But it continues to be discussed. Is anyone listening, I guess, is the question. Well, the same dicastery told us in December that transsexuals can be godparents. So a man who dresses as a woman can be a godmother. Um, how are they going to remedy that in this upcoming document? Yes, uh, you know, the pope has condemned gender ideology. <clears throat> On the other hand, uh, when a group of transsexuals were brought to the Vatican, he then wrote a letter to one of the men posing as a woman, and he called her dear sister. So there's an inconsistency, you know, both sides of the question. I, I, I hoped uh, Cardinal Fernandez is going to do something serious here, but it's very political to say to people, oh, don't, don't think about what I just said. I'm going to tell you something you like next week. Uh, look, I'm not here to be <laughs> liked or disliked. I'm here to find the truth. And when the teaching of Cardinal Fernandez contradicts precisely the teaching we've been taught right up to the day Fernandez issued his document, don't try to distract me by saying, well, you'll like my next document, so don't be so hard on me. This is not how the Catholic Church operates. This feels like a political reaction to a real big mess, you know, where I know you didn't like that. It's like vaudeville, you know, you ain't seen nothing yet, folks, you know, and you bring out the next act. But before you run out of time, I have to ask you both about this new development in the ongoing war the Vatican seems to be waging against the traditional Latin mass. It's been reported that the Vatican has told the Diocese of Austin, Texas, that it must stop the celebration of the TLM in its diocesan cathedral by March 19th. 
Bishop Joe Vasquez confirmed that he was instructed to discontinue the Mass by the Vatican. And Vasquez, by the way, is the bishop who was appointed to run the Diocese of Tyler, Texas, after they removed Bishop Strickland. Father, once again, we seem to see the Vatican welcoming and accompanying everyone except traditional Catholics. Why is the old right being treated like some wicked thing? And, you know, it, 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 it's envisioned that Pachamama worship would be more welcome than the ancient liturgy of the saints. Well, a couple of things, Raymond. Number one, this undermines completely when the Pope says the church is for everyone. Todos, todos, todos in Spanish. That's what he said at the World Youth Day in Portugal this past summer. And that's what he said re uh, recently uh, also in Rome. If the church is for everyone, why are mass-going Catholics who are devout and practice the faith and educate their children in religion, why are they being thrown out of the churches that were built for the celebration of the mass? Now, on a technicality, you can say uh, the, the document, because Traditionis Custodis talked about parish churches. A cathedral is a different type of church. It's the church for the entire diocese. Why can't the mass be celebrated there? This, is, this makes no sense. Now, just on a, let's say, on this practical and uh, spiritual aspect of what it means to be a Catholic, when in the world does a pope or bishops turn to a group of faithful and say, get out, we don't want you here. Your ancestors built this church, but you have no right to worship God here in the mass they celebrated when they built the church. This is cruel. The pope may have the power to do it, but it's a big mistake. And I'm surprised that Cardinal Roche is still pushing this line because it's obvious. Spiritual cruelty is being exercised on a group of Catholics who do nothing more than simply want to worship God. If the Fraternity of St. Peter has a parish, they can go there, right? So it's not per se wrong. But if a diocesan bishop wants to have in his cathedral, now he's told you can't. This is really unjust. You know, gentlemen, uh, the final word on this will be pronounced by the young who will outlive all of us, and they seem to be drawn to this tradition and hungering for this eternal mass and this eternal way of worshiping God, which is really what this is all about. Gentlemen, we'll leave it there for commentary by Robert Royal and Father Gerald Murray and regular podcasts. You can visit catholicthing.org. <laughs> My next guest is coming off last year's runaway box office hit, Sound of Freedom. He's back with a very different film this time, the life of one of the church's most beloved saints, Mother Francis Xavier Cabrini. Cabrini, the movie, will hit theaters on March 8th, but it's already selling out movie houses. Here to tell us about this powerful new film, I'm joined by the director, Alejandro Monteverde. Alejandro, thank you for being here. Uh, look, after such a huge success last year with The Sound of Freedom, uh, with that incredible performance by Jim Caviezel in your beautiful film, uh, this one is a little different. It's a period piece about Mother Cabrini. Uh, she was born in Italy in 1850. She was the first U.S. citizen to become a canonized saint in the Catholic Church. Tell me how you came upon this project. I mean, did you know a lot about Cabrini when a man named Eustace Wolfington brought this story to you? Uh, no, I am guilty to know that I didn't know anything about her. And when I learned about her, one of the things that struck me is that she was referred as the forgotten saint. And that in itself kind of, you know, kind of served as an awakening for me as an artist. I said, we don't want to be forgotten, especially if you had such a 
great impact and great footprint in in the world. So I I, I didn't know anything about her, and when um, they presented me the script, I felt that she was knocking on my door because that was Mother Cabrini. Mm. She will knock on people's doors and always she had a power of persuasion. And that's how she was able to build an empire as big as she did. I mean, she built an empire as big as the Rockefellers and the Vanderbilts in a time where women had no voice. So that really attracted me. You know, I'm an underdog. I have always been an underdog my entire life. I continue to be an underdog, always facing these massive giants. And I identify with her not only as an immigrant myself, but she was an underdog. In many ways, she was like Rocky, yeah. but her opponent was way, way bigger. And just her story, you, you know, it, it really, really uh, spoke to me, and I knew I had to uh, shine a light on her life. Now, now, Eustace Wolfington, he had a... He, who brought you the script, this was kind of a passion project for him. Tell me about his enthusiasm and why he was so determined to make this film. Well, Eustace Wolfington is, it's, he's a, uh, one of those men, I, I call him my mentor. I am actually, you know, I, I am honored to be able to call him my mentor. And one day I'm going to make a movie about his life. He's a, mm -hmm. uh, also a disruptor. Uh, he's one of the most successful entrepreneurs that I know. And yes, from time to time, I will hear him talking about uh, this mother, Cabrini. But, you know, I never made any of it. You know, just like people have devotions to different yeah. saints or, you know, or, or friends from other faiths, they, you know, they, they, they share their, their, you know, their special connections with a particular character. That's how I took it. And one day I got a phone call uh, telling me that if I would read the script. Now, for me, I was trying to figure out what was going to be my next film. But for sure, it was not going to be a movie about a nun. That I knew. I was like, I'm not making a movie about a nun. And uh -huh. it reminded me a line that I did it, uh, that I wrote in my first screenplay. You want to make God laugh? Tell him your plans. Um, mm -hmm. This is this is one of those. Uh, I mm -hmm. I say I will read the script, but I am not making this movie. And then when I started reading the script, it was not even. It was around page ten, where I read a line that spoke very deep to me. Uh, that it said. You can serve your purpose or you can serve your weakness. And in that moment, I knew that if somebody had the wisdom to say a line that really transcends the intellect and hits the heart, which that line did to me, because yeah. I have both. I have yeah. a purpose in my life, but I also have a lot of weaknesses. And every day it's a choice. Mm -hmm. Which one am I going to serve today? And right there, mm -hmm. I was connected. But number two... The most important for me, I believe, we listen with our eyes. And as a filmmaker, as an artist, if I read something and I don't see it in my head, like all these images start popping, that's the only way I know if a movie is for me or not. That's it. It's how I discern. Uh, there is movies that I'm dying to make, but I read it and the images don't come. When I read Mother Cabrini, I, I, I saw that she lived her life in such artistic way, almost operatic, that I saw almost like an operatic uh, 
kind of narrative. You know, I wanted to create this very cinematic odyssey. You know, Alejandro, when I watch the movie, uh, first of all, it's beautifully done. The framing of the shots, the movement, the colors. Um, you, you, you've certainly done, done Mother Cabrini justice. But I knew her because she was one of Mother Angelica's favorite saints. And after seeing your film, mm. I realized why. She was a total entrepreneur. I mean, she founded the Missionary Sisters of the Sacred Heart in 1880 to serve orphans. But she intended to found a convent in China. You know, and Mother Angelica had a similar situation where she wanted to, you know, do one thing and ended up being taken down a different path. Pope Leo, the, um, I think it was the 13th, directed her to go west, not east. She lands in the U.S. in 1889. Here's a clip of Mother Cabrini trying to secure the funds for that hospital she wanted to build in New York. Watch. When I stepped off the boat, gentlemen, not so long ago, I had to learn words that were not in my dictionary. Dago, guinea pig. Words said with such disdain, such hate, that they cut just like a knife. When your fathers first came here, did they not also have to learn words such as Kike, Mick, Polak. And even now, in this fine neighborhood, don't you still hear those names whispered behind your back? I ask you to take those names and turn them into a hospital. I propose purchasing this property and renovating it for 400 beds with services fine enough to attract the wealthy. The fees we earn here, we use to fund the needs of the immigrant with nothing, who will also be treated by the finest doctors so that America will learn we are more than kike and pollock and butcher's meat. But you don't even have the funds to sustain the hospital in five points. Begin the mission, and the means will come. This mission begins tonight, in this room, with you, gentlemen, or it does not begin at all. Hmm. I love her moxie, Alejandro. Uh, yeah. You know, Mother Cabrini, she, she had that steely resolve that you capture so beautifully, and, I, and it, you know, Having worked closely with Mother Angelica and, and read so many accounts of saints, they do sort of step out and, you know, in faith and know that the, the support for the mission will come. But she battled a lot of physical issues and health issues, which you get into here. Opposition from men, from the clergy. Um, what did you learn about Mother Cabrini that impressed you most when you began this project? A lot of things, but I, I would like to talk about that scene real quick, because that, that scene, you know, mm -hmm. th this movie was so... Um, ambitious in the way we shot it. If you look at it, that it's all one shot, and as the camera yep. is coming out, there is a painting of George Washington in the background, and it's an oval. 
painting, you know, on the, mm -hmm. on the shape of an oval. And if all the paintings of the saints, they always have like an aura, an, you know, a, around her. But also as the camera is pulling out, the painting behind, it starts to be reflected on the table. And her face mm -hmm. now covers the face of George Washington and it literally has the same, you know, circular uh, shape around her face. And there is two yeah. Mother Cabrini's. And the reason we did this through the entire film, it's as an immigrant when you come into this country, I'm an immigrant myself, you know, you have two identities. The identities, your roots where you were born, and then the roots that you embrace when you come into a new country. And that in itself, you know, this is when all the immigrants of Italy arrive into this country, it was very important for me that visually we uh, also explore that narrative, you know, because for me as mm -hmm. a filmmaker, when you go see a film, I want you to get, you know, engulfed, embraced, uh, immersed in the power yeah. and the magic of cinema because you're watching a, a film in itself. And I just wanted to point that out because through the entire film, the way we shot this film, it was all choreographed. It was like a dance between the yeah. characters and the camera. And, and uh, it, was, it was, in a way, the movie was almost, in a poetic way, edited in camera. And those ovals, there's a lot of ovals and, and circles throughout the, I mean, I'm thinking there was an under the bridge shot, I think of the monastery she was building that, I, that kind of burned into my mind. But there are a lot of those shots. Why the oval? Why the circles throughout? Because that, 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 that is a symbol of, 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 she was the first American saint. And if you look, uh, you know, when I was doing all the research, I went to the Vatican and I was looking at all this sacred art and, you know, I was looking at all the saints. They all had a halo, yeah. And I said, mm -hmm. you know what, I, I, for me, anyone can do a text. Textual information mm -hmm. is the easiest. You just say it. Oh, I hate right. you or I love you, right? The subtext mm -hmm. is where the gold is. It's where all the things, all the language, all the narrative that goes with our words. And that's what I'm interested on. And that's what we're continuously building this film. Is, you know, that's why we did all those choreographed shots. Because when you live life, you don't edit. You know, it's all one continuous movement through, 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 yeah. through your life. So we wanted to do that. You know, the, the, the bar was pretty high. So... You know, it was a very challenging film, but, you know, the greater the challenge, the greater the glory. What do you want viewers to take away from Cabrini, and who is this movie for, Alejandro? Well, this movie is definitely for everybody, you know. Just, just you know, I, I, I was very attracted to her. This is, this is a woman that happened to be a nun, but her habit does not get in the way of her mission. You know, this is, she was all about social justice, she was, you know, the word immigration, it, 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 it represents, you know, it's almost like a, you know, a political terminology. She was not about immigration. She was about the immigrant, about the human being, about the people with no dignity. And for me, that is what makes Mother Cabrini such a universal story. We've been doing screenings all around the nation with all kinds of backgrounds and the reaction has been incredible because it's about a, a woman that does not give up and we all face our own giants our own challenges and when you looked at her life you realize 
you know, it gives you, it inspires to keep fighting, to keep fighting. Choose a fighter. Cheat the fight, everything, mm -hmm. including death. They always mm -hmm. told her that she had maybe a year or two years to live. And she continued to defy that until her late 60s. And, you know, sometimes, you know, you wake up every day. That's life. You wake up every day facing a giant, facing a challenge of the day. And sometimes mm -hmm. we get overwhelmed. And yesterday I saw the film. Uh, there was a screening uh, at USC. Um, and I saw the film. And, you know, right now, obviously, we're about to come out with the film. I'm pre-production another movie. I have three kids. And I saw the film, and it inspired me to to keep going, to keep fighting, to take one. You know, that's, that, that is what people will take away with this film. It's, it, you, you get to relate to her story at a personal level that mm -hmm. I like to make movies that begin when the movie ends. You know, when you leave the theater, it leaves you in a state of reflection. And, and, um, and that's, that's, that's what I'm very proud of, what this film is it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's achieving. I also love the idea that you're also taking that plaster saint or that name that people are familiar with and giving it flesh. And then you, you see her mission in action. And what a gutsy, determined, inspired, holy woman uh, that you've captured here. Cabrini, directed by Alejandro Monteverde, uh, premieres uh, March 8th. It stars Christina Delana, uh, John Lithgow, uh, incredible performance by David Morse. It hits theaters Friday again, March 8th. Theaters are already selling out. So for information on theaters and showtimes and how to get advanced tickets, visit angel.com forward slash Cabrini. Alejandro, thank you so much for being here. And finally, what should become of church art once the creator of that work has been found guilty of heinous crimes? Art is now at the center of the scandal involving disgraced former Jesuit Marco Rupnik. To discuss, we're joined by art historian and author of How Catholic Art Saved the Faith, Dr. Elizabeth Lamb. Liz, thanks for being here. Uh, I've been wanting to talk to you about this subject for a while. Um, I know it's the age-old argument about art versus artist. In this case, the artist is a disgraced Jesuit priest who's been found guilty of horrific sexual abuse of religious sisters, possibly men, do the misdeeds of an artist, whether a painter or a musician or a filmmaker, ever warrant the removal or suppression of his art? Well, I think that's a it's a difficult question, and it's one that it really takes a moment to stop and think about. So we have a very famous artist who was indeed convicted for murder, who, of course, is Caravaggio. We have a rapist artist who is Agostino Tassi. We have John Lorenzo Bernini, who in the middle of an adulterous affair had his, had his mistress's face slashed. So we've had artists who have been condemned either in the court of public opinion or actually condemned in the, in the case of Caravaggio, and their arts still sits mm -hmm. on the walls. Now, the question we have really here at the heart of the Marco Rupnik question is that, indeed, he has not been found guilty at the end of a trial or due process or, or an investigation. As a matter of fact, he still wanders about making art, taking commissions. And I think part of what we need to stop and think about is, is it that our inability to see the man brought to justice, to see justice for his victims, are we in turn taking it out on the art? 
Well, Liz, he was excommunicated, and he has been removed from his order. They didn't do that for nothing. They only did it because there was evi enough evidence there. I know the trial hasn't proceeded fully, but that's other people's fault. But those things are underway. So there is some evidence that the man did something horrible, and he's been removed from his order and, and sent packing as a result. I know he's still wandering around, and the excommunication has apparently been lifted, which is another problem. Yes. But look, yes. there are widespread calls from the public to remove of Rupnik's mosaics from the front of the Basilica in Lourdes, for instance. The bishop says he will make a decision soon about whether that art should be removed or not. Your thoughts? I hope that the bishop stops and thinks about it. I do think we have to be careful with the Rupnik story. He was excommunicated, and then that excommunicated was lifted. He was expelled from his order not for the crimes he committed against those women, but for lack of obedience. We really have never seen this man brought to task for the horrific yep. abuse that we have read about in the version of the victims. And so, again, the mm -hmm. problem becomes, are we going to go after the art when the man instead of the man— and the problem with that, Raymond, this is what I'm very concerned about. This is a kind yeah. of damnatio memoria. This is cancel culture. So by putting the story off, removing the art so we don't have to look at it before, we will never have to confront the responsibility of all the people who lionized the man, held up his art as the most beautiful, important art, right. made him the logo for the Jubilee year. And those that, that, that attraction of his art will never be explored. It will never stop another Rupnik from coming to the fore. Yeah, no, no, I agree with you. Look, the first order here is the justice of those victims that they are crying out for. That should be the first obligation of the church. But, I mean, I have to say, from an aesthetic viewpoint, this might be a great opportunity to get rid of some horribly ugly, in my estimation, and banal mosaics. I mean, this looks like I drew crap like this, Liz, when I was like eight years old. I mean, they're, they're stick figures. This is not Caravaggio. We can't confuse the two. Now, look, he's also a former priest, Liz, and this is very important. Father Rupnik wasn't just some artist. He wasn't Caravaggio. He wasn't, uh, you know, one of these other miscreant, uh, uh, you know, passionate artists who kill somebody in the moment. That wasn't what we're dealing with. He's a Catholic priest who was an artist, and he abused these religious sisters, or it's certainly alleged that he did under his care. He deformed. That deformed spirituality is the wellspring of what I would consider this deformed work that is now all over the world. Doesn't the fact that he's a priest making liturgical works, not any works, for churches, isn't that a huge difference in this argument and the way it should be considered? I agree entirely, first of all, about the art, which I have never been fond of. And even more importantly <laughs> is the question of the scandal that is given by the fact that he is a cleric. I can think of an example of Fra Filippo Lippi, who was put in charge of a convent oh. of women, and that's how we got Filipino Lippi, an enormous scandal and a lot of fallout from mm. that. And yet his art still sits in churches. And so um, and while the figure is very, well, the, well, while the figure of the cleric is extremely scandalous, I think one thing we need to remember is that this man, uh, uh, who is incarnated in a new diocese, he was incarnated in a new diocese, right. this man being able to offer sacraments, I find it much more disturbing that this man's hands can be on a chalice than on pieces yeah. of mosaic. I, I find that the yeah. fact that he still can continue and 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 and, and, and be at an altar is is the most disturbing than what he puts up above the altar.
Uh, well, particularly what he's alleged to have done with a chalice and one of his victims, which I can't even repeat on the air, Liz. It's so vile and filthy, but uh, because he's both defaming an individual and, and defiling a sacrament. But uh, Rutnik's art is prominently displayed, nonetheless, as you mentioned earlier, all over the world. It's, it's, on, it's in Lourdes. It's at Padre Pio's tomb in San Giovanni Rotondo. It's at the John Paul II Cultural Center in Washington, D.C., which I walked in the room. I was scandalized to see that horrible thing there long before I knew who he was or, what, or who made it. This is certainly not Caravaggio or Michelangelo. And his proximity to power, which you mentioned earlier, and the Vatican gave him access to these international canvases. It seems to me justice should be served first by asking the question, who were his patrons? Who forced him, if you will, on these churches? Because this is church art. I, I think you're, you're, you're moving in on what I think is the concern for me. Um, the fact is that his art did go up in these churches everywhere. He has been patronized by every pontificate. He was a very, very powerful player. And there is a part in understanding how could it be that we didn't, whether our taste in art suddenly sort of shifted the minute we found out that this guy was was a monster. But up until that point, right. oh, Rubnik, I remember, I remember when he was chosen for the logo <laughs> and I called up and said, what is wrong with you people? And the answer I got was, Rubnik, he's so hot right now. So the fact of the matter is mm. we do really need to explore. I do think taking down the art and creating our own version of cancel culture does not allow us to explore what it is that we saw in that art. Was it merely the fact that he was endorsed by John Paul II or that we saw his works yes. in the in these other important sites? Or was there something that we're responding to? And I'll just give you a little note about Caravaggio. When Caravaggio yeah. was, was, was in Rome and he was hated by enemies and he was a very violent man who was constantly fighting, one of yeah. his biographers said he was dark his art was dark, and it was a reflection of his dark soul. But actually, the dark yes. and light in Caravaggio was Caravaggio fighting this dark side and trying to work between it. And I think it would be right. a mistake to not allow art historians 200 years down the line to try to have a crack at the arc of Marco Rubnik to understand what was going on and what is clearly a tormented soul. Liz, you've studied many of these works. Uh, you've seen these Rubnik uh, mosaics, pardon the expression, in the flesh. Um, they are sought after, uh, at least by select clerics. And we should we should make this point. It is clerics who are the primary buyers here. OK. And it was clerics who were recommending that this art be propagated. Um, are, are people out of line asking for a reappraisal of this work? I mean, I guess my perspective is if this were a film by, by some director or an Andy Warhol, I wouldn't care what their personal lives were. But we're talking about a di disgraced, disgusting Jesuit making art supposedly to focus us on the worship of God. And it's on altars. It's in front of basilicas. It's a different type of art. Yes. I do, but I think part of what made his art attractive, I've been, you're right, I have been looking at his art since I was in the Mater Redentoris Chapel while he was mm -hmm. making it. No, I'm not a model. And the fact is that in the, in, in those works, I was, I've been trying to understand for years and long before the scandal hit. And one of the things that I found, one of the un things I began to understand is the simplicity of his art, which you, you put very well. I could make this as I was, if I was when I was a child. But I think there's something right. about his art, that very simplistic art that really spoke to a world that was very simplistic in its understanding of art. 
So in many ways, what this also is, is a call to be more responsible about understanding what it is we're putting in front of us. Now, in many ways, that art, its simplicity, its bright colors, the painstaking meticulousness it takes to put together a mosaic was easy and approachable for people to understand. And it made the background of a church sort of shiny and colorful. And so we need to kind of look at this and give it time, give a generation that's not responding to the immediate knee-jerk horror of the scandal, but people who can mm -hmm. look at it with a greater sense of distance so that we don't just sweep him under the rug, pretend like it never happened, and never take the responsibility of lionizing this man. Rubnik's mosaics, I mean, they've even been criticized by some as being satanic, uh, at least some of the elements featured in them. Do you see any of that in those works? And does it, and does that aspect um, of his misdeeds, at least, color the work that he's created? I'm very glad that you brought that up. I've been very troubled by this sort of constant pointing and satanic. Now, clearly, when these women talk about their truly horrific experiences, they talk about a satanic Terrible. experience. Whether or not that can be translated into a work of art is another question. So my first question is, could somebody please show me another work of art that's satanic? Could you put in front of me a work that's clearly like the like a, a work of art that's not, you know, with the image of the devil that is is clearly that satanic encoded. Show me where the satanic is. Because for everything that people might be able to interpret, the dark eyes, the fluid lines, I can think of other reasons why he might choose to make those choices artistically. So I'm very uncomfortable with this sort of pointing at the work and saying that's satanic because once we head down that road then we look at something else and well that's satanic and that's satanic and that's satanic and the next thing we know we are just as immersed and bought into the cancel culture of our age as anybody knocking down statues from here to the mason dixon line no i get your point i get your point and i am i am on uh, in agreement with you that we shouldn't be tearing down works of art but this thing is so offensive visually. See, I don't think it should have been put up, Liz. That's the other point. It's so flippin' no ugly. Here. This is not Caravaggio. Caravaggio, you could look at that and you're inspired and uplifted. I know it came from a dark place. I, I've read his biography, and you feel that and see it. You and I know filmmakers who have the same come from the same tortured place, and yet they create inspirational works. I'm all for that. But this guy's work is neither... The work itself, I, th I think, is not meritorious. It's ugly. It has very little aesthetic beauty or power in it, I think. But on top of that, when you, when you look at the biography and you hear from these victims, it just breaks your heart. I mean, the abuse in the art, I think, at a point, it, it does speak to who created it. And that's why I think you see people in bishops and others wrestling with what do we do with this stuff? It's all over our churches. It's a constant reminder of him, his victims, and his venality. I'll give you the quick last word. I, I, I see your point entirely. I just have this, I feel like it should be a decision for the future to take. A little note about bad and problematic art, it disappears. So the fact of the matter is yeah. there are plenty of people during the course of the history of art who have created truly offensive works. And they're sitting in churches. I can think of a mural that was recently painted in yeah. a church in southern Italy. But that work fades in the distance. And one day the time comes and people tear it down because it has no meaning to it. And what I think we should yeah. let happen is allow the work not to take the place of the man, but allow the work to fall on its own merits or lack of such during mm. in the future. 
I wish people had read your books and been more attentive to the history of beautiful Catholic art. They might not have put this simplistic junk up in the first place, but we'll leave it there. Thank you for the spirit of discussion. How Catholic Art Thanks. Saved the Faith by Dr. Elizabeth Lev is available at bookstores everywhere and online, including EWTN's catalog. Thank you, Liz. That is all the time we have for now. Be sure to catch us next week. Until then, we'll be scouting the world over for all that is seen and unseen. On behalf of the staff and crew of EWTN News, thank you for watching. I'm Raymond Arroyo. Bye now.